Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm Oge Chibo. And I'm Ian Bukta. It's great to be back. I hope everyone had a joyous, wonderful, scrumptious, and eventful winter break. Happy holidays, everyone, even if the holidays is over. And we are back in studio again. We had a much-needed break. If you, if you haven't heard some of the reporting that happened during that time, like Steve Sonia is reporting over the last two weeks on harm reduction, or if you missed our holiday special where we got to introduce ourselves and you got to see who's on the other side of the microphone, I would go back and check those out as well. If you are new to this podcast, we talk to world experts on public health issues and answer the questions that you have in public health through our conversations with these experts and some other things we do as well. Speaking of world experts, this week, Haley Boudreaux sat down with Dr. Raj Patel, who has written several books on food policy and social justice, and hosts the Secrets Ingredients podcast. He also has a film coming out that he talks about during the interview. Note that we recorded this in 2019, so when he talks about next year, that means 2020, so this year. Alright, let's go to Haley's conversation with Raj Patel. I'm here today with Raj Patel, who is an award-winning writer, activist, and academic. He is a co-host on the Secret Ingredient podcast and a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs in Austin, Texas. He's an author of many books. A couple are The Value of Nothing, Stuffed and Starved, and his newest book, A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things. Currently, he's working on a documentary surrounding the global food system called Generation Food, which is set to release in March. So welcome. Thank Thank you you so much for joining me. Um, Can you please state your name to your audience and then also your title? Uh, My name's Raj Patel and I am a research professor at the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. Great. Um, So thank you again for joining me. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to your lecture last night, which was hosted by Sustainable Iowa Land Trust. Can you tell our listeners a little about about where you grew up and um, how you got to where you are today? Um, well, I, I was born and raised in London, uh, and uh, the part of the food system that I grew up in was the uh, was retail, and in particular a convenience store. So my, my parents ran a convenience store, and I was surrounded by the kinds of really bad food that are driving the, uh, the the explosion in type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And we sold cigarettes too, and uh, so we, we, we were the retail outlet for a lot of non-communicable, non-communicable disease and uh, the epidemics that have followed. So a lot of your work surrounds policy, but a lot of people don't like talking about policy. How can we talk about policy without actually talking about policy? Uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the activist strategy that I've seen that works best is not to uh, insert oneself into a community and say, let's talk about the uh, the number of parts per million of uh, CO2 in the atmosphere, uh, because that is, you know, at one level, just guaranteed to fail. It's disrespectful, it's not terribly engaging, and it doesn't really open the door for anything other than people to listen to you, the expert, talk. Whereas good engagement, it seems to me, puts the emphasis on public uh, and, and actually puts the emphasis on health. And w- one of the stories I told at the lecture last night was of a friend, uh, his name is Bram Ahmadi. He runs something called the People's Community Market in Oakland, and he works with at-risk youth uh, and tries to recruit them to transform the food system. And 
his strategy is to have, you know, when there's a meeting of young people who don't really care about the food system, what he says is not, let's talk about the food system, but tell me who you love. And the minute that he asks that question, the, the, the mode of engagement shifts a little bit. And the, the, the audience is fairly reluctant to start off with, but eventually they'll confess that they love, you know, their grandma or, the, or their aunt. And then the question becomes, all right, well, how are they doing? And reluctantly people will concede that, well, you know, things are a little tough. Why are they tough? Well, because, you know, grandma has diabetes and, and that means dialysis. And then that means going, uh, you know, to the dialysis center where they treat us very badly. And we used to live in the neighborhood that was at least close to the dialysis center. Now, you know, we've been gentrified out and it takes ages to get on the bus and the bus never comes on time. And uh, and then, you know, the, 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 the dialysis center says, well, you know, your, your blood sugar's high and they blame us. But actually, you know, if the food stamp entitlement runs out halfway through the month, what are you going to do? And then, you know, there's nothing to eat but junk food. And so what do we do? We, we buy a burger and we eat half today and half tomorrow. And all of a sudden, this, this mode of engagement moves away from thinking about you know, a specific issue and recognizes the complexity in people's lives um, and the many and varied social determinants of health. And by talking about those social determinants of, of health, you first you, you enumerate them and you observe that actually you know, to, to control type 2 diabetes, you need to be thinking about transport. You obviously need to think about food policy. You need to think about um, the way the healthcare system is structured. You need to think about gentrification and structural racism and all, you know, a range of things. But you also, by asking people, who do you love? You've created a, a sort of reservoir of, you know, sort of policy-making rocket fuel that you can use to, to mobilize and to start making changes, whether at the municipal, at the state, or, or even at the federal level. That, it seems to me, is a much better way of uh, engaging in questions around public health, not only because, as I say, it surfaces many of the social determinants of health, but also because it creates, uh, in the, the collaborative, co-creative moment of enumerating them, a, a kind of desire to be able to solve this problem too. So I want to talk a little bit more about food systems. So what do you feel is the biggest issue in our food systems right now? Capitalism. You know, if, if 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 you're asking for one big thing, then capitalism is a fairly big thing, yeah. and uh, it seems to me that it's long history, uh, and it's a history that involves colonial control, and a history that that involves genocide and slavery and patriarchy, of course. But it, that that long history of of capitalism has resulted in the you know the, the crises that we see today not not just the climate crisis but also you know a reversing trend of you know declining numbers of people going hungry so now the the, the number of people hungry going going hungry in the world is going up uh, the proportion of people hungry in the world is also uh, not falling anymore and uh, what we're seeing is uh, you know a, a trajectory that uh, in, in which you know we can game out what the future food systems of the planet might look like. But if we stick to business as usual, we're heading you know, very speedily towards the sixth extinction. We're heading very speedily towards a world that has more than two degrees Celsius uh, climate change and catastrophic loss of life and uh, loss of, uh, of biodiversity. So kind of going along with the food system and, and policy, I want to talk a little bit about last night it was brought up about cheap food policy mm. and how we currently value our food. Um, what do you think about this? You know, what do you have as a recommendation for people? I learned a lot about the food system when I was working in the San Francisco Bay Area. And one of the, the sort of standard critiques of the Berkeley food set is that everyone there would, would like you to spend 
as much money as you can on, you know, olive oil and red wine and fine cheese. And I, I think it's important to recognize that the labor that goes into good organic food is expensive. Right. Uh, and so, you know, organic food should be expensive because mm-hmm. it's it values the earth and it values workers or it should value workers in ways that industrial food systems don't. But you can't, uh, you know, you can't blame the victim here. I mean, cheap food is part of the strange American compact where uh, American workers, particularly working class uh, blue collar workers, have seen very little in, in terms of real wage gain since the 1980s. But in exchange for this, food prices have been very low and oil prices have been low. So you know, energy and, and food have been kept cheap because workers have been kept cheap. Mm-hmm. So it, it seems to me absurd to insist that you know, everyone needs to eat organic when, in fact, the kind of income levels that you need in order to be able to eat, you know, good, healthy, organic diets is, you know, it, it, it's approaching six figures uh, in the United States for a family of four. And then you, you know, if, if you recognize that, I think the, the, the question has to be, well, how do we make sure that everyone is well paid and that everyone has uh, an income and a guaranteed income so that everyone can eat well? Uh, and th- that's a question that's very different from insisting that everyone just merely go out and buy organic kale. Uh, I-, I think that you know th- w- we do need an income transformation policy as right. well as a food system shift, so that the way that you know food is produced here in Iowa changes rather dramatically. It, it means that you know, industrial agriculture has to pay the full consequences of the way that it pollutes the the, the rivers, for example. But it also means that uh, you know small sustainable farms that, that, of which there are many here in Iowa actually get recognized for the value that they put into the ground and the value of the food that they that they share with the community and changing the economics of the equation uh, matters a great deal but in order for that to happen you need workers and you need citizens and you know working or not to be able to afford to be able to to, to eat um, so you've kind of talked a lot about some some issues within the food system but what do you feel is the biggest opportunity to fix the broken food system when it comes to climate change, uh, the, the policy that, that I'm very enthusiastic about is the Green New Deal. Um, and you may ask, well, what's that got to do with food? And it has everything to do with food. I mean, mm-hmm. not just because the food system is one of the largest uh, global emitters of greenhouse gases, but also because when we're thinking about changing the way the economy works in, in the United States, the Green New Deal calls for, yes, transformations in energy and transportation and what have you, but it also calls for a recognition that partnering with farmers and ranchers, we need to make sure that every American is able to eat a healthy meal. Right. And if you're interested in avoiding a climate catastrophe uh, and recognize that we're in the middle of a climate crisis, then the Green New Deal is big enough to recruit everyone to a similar kind of vision. And you know, people criticize the Green New Deal for saying it's too big. But science demands that the, you know, the, the scale of the problem be met by the scale of the solution. And we, we don't have very long to reach you know, carbon neutrality. And getting, you know, getting U.S. carbon levels down by 2030 seems almost an impossible thing to, to dream of. But it, that's, that's the lift ahead of us. And so while the climate change is both a threat to, to farmers across, you know, across the world and therefore the people who eat, which is to say everyone, the opportunity of some political will around this is, is, I, I'm, is something I'm quite hopeful about. So involving climate change, if I want to make a difference um, around climate change, why should I do that? If my neighbor's not going to do it, if my friends aren't going to um, do anything with climate change, you know, maybe 
this Iowa City is going to be involved in climate change efforts, um, but what what about neighboring towns, neighboring cities, neighboring states, neighboring countries? Um, what if they're not going to make a change with climate change? Why should I still make an effort? Well, I mean, th- there are a number of reasons. I mean, there's the moral imperative of just doing the right thing once you know quite how urgent the task is ahead. So, you know, why should I stop clubbing baby seals just because, you know, <laughs> okay, you know will, will that stop other people clubbing baby seals? No, but, you know, or kicking puppies or whatever it is. Um, uh, but we once we recognize that there's something that we're doing that is morally untenable, we should probably stop just for that reason alone. Um, and there are other reasons too. Uh, perhaps one of the most powerful, and I think people forget this, is that while it seems like doing something about climate change is always represented as a deprivation, uh, as a privation of some sort, where you're going to have to give up this, and then you're going to have to give up that, and this will suck, and, uh, and there's a long litany of things that feel like it, they will be bad and your life will be worth less. Um, the shift that, that something like the Green New Deal invites is something that is a, a, a move towards a different kind of economy and a, and a better one. It, it's one in which uh, there is more caring and more repairing of the, the world around us than the one that we're, we're in at the moment. Um, one that supports uh, reproductive labor, the, the one that, that you know is about spending time with family, spending time with children, that, that allows parental time off in ways that are, you know, at the moment in the United States are laughably little, um, but th- that encourages us to, to work less and to be in community much more, that, that supports the work of carers, of, of whom there are many, uh, and, and many unpaid carers. Uh, th- that kind of vision, it seems to me, is one that we all want anyway. And everyone knows that something's not quite right with the climate and everyone knows that there, there's something not quite right with the way that, that the world seems a little too easy that we can just jump on our phones and somehow by magic something will appear at our doorstep the next mm-hmm. day and all the data suggests that you know we're gonna have to give that up and live like we did in the 1970s and for those of you who are listening uh, i'm looking at you Haley, you may not <laughs> have been around in the 1970s it wasn't that bad you know that the, 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 could we sort of flit across the world in a heartbeat and expect something to be delivered to us within a day no but were there spaces for joy and pleasure and building community and being stewards of, of the world yes they were you know it's not it, it's okay and not only is it just okay it was i mean if, if we try and imagine working less and exploiting ourselves less i think everyone wants that right so so that, that's a way of answering the question well why should i do something you should do it not because it'll be a deprivation but because it'll be an enhancement to your life it'll make your life better yeah also it'll it'll save a number of species from extinction and make us thread us more deeply into the the, the sort of tapestry of life that, that we have tried to wrench ourselves away from and that's not a bad thing either right. so no i, I mean I, I think that there are a number of of reasons to do it but I think if you just knock on someone's door and say hey why haven't you signed up to the Green New Deal mm-hmm. that's that's a losing proposition particularly uh, when the, the, the sort of uh, news echo chamber has already done its best to sort of render the term toxic so again I mean I think asking questions about love and, and relationship and community are usually the best ways of advertising some of the best things about the Green New Deal and so yes while there may be things we get to do a little less of the the compensations are things that people that, that have demonstrably made people's lives better, uh, you know, in terms of working less and having more connection with one another. And who doesn't want that? Um, so when we think of major world issues, hunger, climate change, discrimination, sexism, we often think of these issues all separately. Mm. But 
how are they all actually related? Well, I mean, in the original New Deal, uh, unions, for example, the, the Southern Tenant Farmers Union, understood that all of these have to be tackled together because they are products of the same system. You, you can't just sort of, well, you know, you know, you can't just have infrastructure week, for example, without or, or gender week or race week. Because these structures of domination happen simultaneously. And in fact, one of the, the, the lessons that the union busting movement picked up uh, and has since very successfully used uh, in the wake of the, Green New, uh, of the original New Deal is the idea that you can split people apart by saying, well, you know, it's the, the race, you know, the movement for racial equality is going to uh, get in the way of the, the movement of workers' rights, which is getting in the way of the, the you know, the, the paid time off or, you know, equal rights for women. Uh, and, you know, Surely you want to do one of these first. And the union movement uh, knew in the, the 1920s and 30s that this was a diversion, that this was a trick. And uh, so, you know, insofar as unions were successful, they've, and insofar as unions have always been successful, uh, that, that success has rested on understanding that you stand indivisible because the bosses and, and their henchmen will come for you with these various kinds of ideas of, you know, we need to split apart these issues because it's just too big. And I think with the Green New Deal, the response has to be, no, the thing we're trying to transform is so big that we can't split these apart. Mm-hmm. That's precisely the argument for why they must happen simultaneously. Um, so it's something to be wary of, particularly in a time of politics that is so vociferous, that is so divisive, that I, I, that I, I can see lots of ways in which this could go wrong. And I, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about the Green New Deal. Uh, but I also want to celebrate, at least in its initial framing, how ambitious and you know, how recognizing of inclusivity that it can be in a way that, that's powerful for everyone. I mean, you know, that, that, that empowers uh, not just, you know, the, the sort of class of white men who seem to be going through sort of various kinds of a crisis of identity on uh, on campuses in America in terms of what they perceive to be assaults on their privilege, um, but rather recognizing that, for example, you know, men everywhere, we have to own patriarchy and we have to, you know, fight our damnedest for it to end. But that's okay. That's part of the process of liberation, but it can't happen without, you know, a concomitant process of liberation around recognizing racial privilege or class privilege or the privilege of growing up in America when, you know, America has become America because of its military incursions in the rest of the planet. So, you know, this is not pleasant history, but it's history and it's important history. And it's not the, the sort of, you know, fairy tales about states' rights that often get um, passed off as, uh, you know, race-free, happy moments of, of the South, but th- that engage with some of the awkward parts of our pasts for which we aren't responsible, but for which we nonetheless need to take responsibility. You've talked about collective organizing, um, but again, how can we involve our neighbors? In what ways can we knock down these silos? I think one of the lovely things about working in the food world is that you have three opportunities a day to be able to engage with people. And to use the, the act of eating or, or the rituals of eating as a, a moment of recruitment is, it can be incredibly powerful. Um, you know, I, I have friends in the climate change world who recognize every day that things are getting and that's not a great place to be for them. And it takes a, a, a sort of moral fortitude and a courage that I don't have. For me, I'm a sensualist. Uh, I like pleasure. 
And pleasure is a good way of recruiting people. If, if you know, I mean, if you enjoy the senses, then you will enjoy food and you will right. enjoy exchange. And it, it, it seems to me that building community has, I mean, I'm working on, on projects on the Green New Deal. I'm working on projects with my students. And the, the way that we begin our semester has been about cooking together and about uh, sharing meals together. And the, the result is a class that cares for one another. Right. Uh, and that care uh, will allow students to learn together in ways that are, that are far superior than if I just, you know, am leaning over them, demanding homework from you know, from the get-go. And building that sense of community means that the people start to trust each other and are vulnerable with each other and are, you know, open to learning new things, not just about, you know, the assignments, but about how it is that they can hold themselves in the world and can feel good about themselves in a world. And in a time where, where so many of us feel so alone and so disconnected from the world around us, um, food can be an a really important way of bringing people back together and that means you know having meals with your neighbors um, and that's you know uh, my my, you know, my neighbors in Austin Texas are certainly uh, not folk who share my political views uh, but nonetheless we get to exchange and share ideas in ways that ordinarily they wouldn't be exposed to my ideas nor I theirs uh, and that that's all to the good because you know, as we move to, you know, towards understanding the magnitude of this climate crisis, I'm imagining that they're, they're shifting their perspectives and, and I'm understanding a lot more about where they're coming from as a result of these interactions. Uh, and you know, what, what we discovered in the making of this documentary project, this 10-year film project that um, I've been working on with Steve James, the director of Hoop Dreams, and, uh, which has involved you know, Malawian women coming over from Malawi to the United States to talk about climate change with people who are very skeptical about it. Uh, the, the, one of the lessons of organizing that I picked up from, from these Malawian activists is that change begins with denial. And, uh, you know, where people start off saying, well, you know, climate change, that's just rubbish, that's just wrong, can't possibly be. Um, but to seed, you know, to, to understand that that's always going to be someone's initial reaction. Um, and the more vociferous the reaction, the more likely it is that uh, ultimately they, they might come round. And uh, what's interesting is that, you know, over the, the course of a couple of years, people that we met initially in Iowa who were very sceptical about climate change have quite dramatically changed their views. And that's not only to do with an encounter with people who share different views, but it is something to do with that. And, uh, and I think that, that you know, we're in a moment where people are open to changing their views if only, if only we connect. So this next question might be very similar to what you just said, but I, we ask this question a lot on the podcast. Yeah. So if you want to like repeat anything, that's fine. In your documentary, you explore global food systems and climate change. Can you talk about how place matters in the work that you do? We talk a lot, a lot in public health about different zip codes mm. um, and how, you know, you can be in one zip code and right next to it, a completely different zip code have completely different health outcomes. Mm. You explored that globally. I mean, in Malawi and then here in Iowa. I mean, you showed that in your documentary mm. last night, the difference of their climate change views. Mm. Well, let me have a crack at it. You yeah. Said some of the... The ideas that you know, we saw in the documentary were that uh, the, the, the Malawians who were trying to persuade climate change skeptics here in, in America that climate change was a thing, they observed time and again that um, well, you know, in America it seems that you can pretend that it's not happening fairly success successfully. There are lots of social institutions that exist to 
pay you in case you know your your land is flooded or um, to provide some sort of compensation or relief um, when there you know there's massive you know flooding or pollution or whatever it is um, but uh, in Malawi there's no such option and so that means that there's uh, you know that, that segregation in, in this case not by zip code but by country uh, was something that was very acute and very observable to the Malawian activists. But what they also observed was that when we visited farms run by African-Americans, uh, the, the the dynamic was different. And that, that, for example, in Detroit, the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network has a farm called D-Town Farms. Yeah. Um, and when they visited there, they saw, first of all, that, 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 you know, that this was a farm that, that did seem to be engaging with uh, debates around climate change and food insecurity and increasingly gender inequality, as well as you know, histories of racial inequality. And that, you know, th- that place matters not just because of the zip code, but because, again, of the histories of racism that are layered onto it uh, and the histories of resistance that have come from that in, in defiance of white supremacy. And that, I think, was something that, that resonated... Uh, very deeply with with our Malawian uh, colleagues, that uh, that there is this economic segregation not just between countries but within the United States, and it was something that they hadn't expected uh, coming over here. You know, they'd seen America on on TV and assumed it to be homogenous in a way that really it isn't, and that that they found inspirational and in some ways paralleling their own experience. The you know the the the, the kinds of resistance that you're you're seeing in Detroit or in uh, Maryland, um, uh, the Black Dirt Farm Collect- uh, Cooperative. So th- there are there are places uh, in the United States that seem more similar to Malawi than they do to to Iowa, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least from their perspective, I thought that that place mattered in that inter- that way, in, in, in perhaps a, a surprising way. I had never thought about it like that before. Mm. I've heard of that farm in in Detroit, mm-hmm. and actually thought about going there for an internship as well because. I, I believe we're talking about the same farm. So then they have a food pantry um, connected mm. and, and provide. Yeah. They're pretty self-sustaining. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, and even to the extent that now they're, you know, they're selling to the city. Or right. Selling yes. To the, yeah. 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 Um, okay. The next question is, public policy and public health go hand in hand. You've hinted at that um, throughout our interview. But so many issues in the news, um, effective communication gets lost. And so how can public health and policy professionals work together to create better strategic communication about important issues? The hardest part of communicating is listening. And I don't feel that uh, enough of my colleagues in the the public health and uh, public policy world listen enough. Um, and that means that they're missing how it is that they need to be phrasing things. They, they're, they're missing how it is that their priorities may not match the, their audiences. And I mean, I, I do think that, that that's, you know, if, if there is such a thing as a secret ingredient in, in communication, it's shutting up and listening to where people are at and spending time in community so that you can hear and see things that ordinarily you wouldn't. I discovered that with this documentary process because we've been filming for seven years. And in seven years, you get to catch a lot that you don't get in, you know, just a, a sort of an, a, an interview or a podcast or whatever it is. And you get to see people's lives change. And that's you know that 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 very structured kind of listening that's part of a documentary is nonetheless the kind of discipline of engagement and sitting you know, being in community that 
public policy and public uh, health uh, policy makers don't necessarily have the time to do. I mean, one of the, the great arts of policy making is can you distill it down to a page? Uh, and you know that's fine. That that's an, that's an art. I understand. People are busy. Uh, but you shouldn't be too busy to understand what it is that you're, you know, to, to see whether your priorities actually match the, the constituency that you're aiming to serve. And often those constituencies have multiple priorities. And again, this gets back to the idea of the complexity and intersectionality of real life. And these priorities deserve to be taken on in, in ways that are simultaneous. And listening is the best part of uh, developing this kind of communication strategy. Okay, so I've Two last questions for you. So what is one thing outside of work that you've been thinking about recently? I, I mean, I, I'm loath to say, well, I've been thinking about my kids um, because I want to recognize th- that raising children is work uh, and it's, you know, it's reproductive labor and it's a labor that makes other kinds of labor possible. And, but, you know, I, mean, I, I, think, I think about them a great deal. I think about, you know, and I, I read science fiction particularly because uh, it, it's a window into uh, an imaginative exercise about what, what the future might be for, for us here. So I read a lot of cli-fi, a lot of climate science fiction, um, but that's sort of work as well. And I, you know, I garden and I'm trying to fight poison ivy in the back and I'm, you know, try, I'm trying to decide whether chickens are part of my, you know, part of my life or not. And to some extent that's about uh, you know something recreational and on the other hand it's also about how you know how does this this particular sort of privilege that I have to be able to garden and farm uh, in a small bit of, uh, of urban Texas fit into the bigger climate change thing so you know to me does that feel like well it kind of does as well but that's okay I mean uh, it's all right for you know a life's work to be you know life's work um, and and I'm 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 okay with that. So so maybe I, I'm that, that's how I'm going to answer your question. Okay, that's a that's a great answer. So what is one thing in life that you thought you knew but you later realized you were wrong about? Oh, where do I begin? Um, I, I mean, I mean for, for me the 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 work around um, patriarchy is is stuff that predates even that, right? I mean, it, so. I didn't even think about patriarchy. I, I didn't even know that I was right about it. I didn't even. I, I didn't know that it was a thing. I didn't understand how how gender and uh, uh, and sort of male privilege worked. Um, and realizing that, and having uh, you know, having been in relationships and in movements that have firstly pointed that out to me, and then both given me the support I need to get rid of it but also called me out that's been a lifelong journey but you know i mean I, again you know it, it, it this is one of these stories of change begins with denial i mean i didn't even know it was, it was a thing you could deny and then i denied it and then i then i would you know recognize that in fact i am a product of, of patriarchy and i need to, to spend you know to spend the rest of my life fighting that and that's one of the biggest things but yeah that's why it is again a, a sort of lifetime journey but i i, I think that there that those that's the kind of thing that many of us will get to experience in you know in terms of our relationship to capitalism that we didn't even know you know it's it's just the water we swam in and then we realized it was destroying the environment we were so attached to it but actually things things are now much better i'm I'm projecting it onto our post-capitalist future here but um but that's a future worth fighting for uh do you have anything else that you want to add thank you for listening to me yeah thank you
All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed Haley's conversation with Dr. Raj Patel. Uh, this is the first time we've ever had to bleep something on a podcast, so that was that was interesting. Okay, what did you think about the the um, interview? Um, I thought it was really um, informative. So this week in one of my one of my classes, we're really talking about social determinants of health, and when Haley brought up Place Matters, which is a documentary we watched too. It's a really nice documentary. I'm not sure if it's out there. So if anyone wants to just Google Place Matter, Social Determinants of Health. But basically talking about how our living environment, the structures, the policies, and then going back in time, which Dr. Which um, Raj Patel also talked about. He spoke about how our history really has defined where we live, the resources we're given, and how it has indirectly, but kind of also directly impacted our health. So now it's where people feel like the choices that they make are the only choices they have to make, which if we're actually looking at, it is for most times or most of the point. But like, And I was putting some crosshairs with some people where I was talking and I feel so bad because I came from a very individual like, oh yeah, but it's your choice. I understand life is hard, but you made that choice. And then the person was trying to make me understand like, no, this is what they felt like they had to make. If they didn't make this choice, then they'll be hungry, homeless, you know? And no one, obviously, I don't think there's really anyone who goes out looking at homeless people like, okay, let me help you do this. And nobody's really thinking about what you went through, how your childhood, how whatever had to impact where you are right now. It's more of like, no, you made the choice to do this. And I will advise people if you want to know more about how like... Yeah, we actually did a... So social determinants are complicated and hard to work through and so easy to mess up. Mm-hmm. Um, so we actually did an entire series. Our initial series that we did as a podcast um, was all about social determinants of health in context of how you know where you live and what and, and we kind of built that up to a really interesting conversation that we had with Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, who helped out at or who was the one who discovered the Flint water crisis. So if if you have not heard that podcast that podcast episode, I would definitely go back and listen to that one because that really does dive into some of these a different look at some of the other um, social determinants of health. Mm-hmm. Would so one thing I uh, that I really enjoyed about this was the fact that it was about food. You know, I love food and I thought with Haley's background as a dietitian, she has some really interesting questions. I love food too. Yeah. <laughs> food is great. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that one of the things that I've enjoyed so much, I've been listening to, uh, the secret ingredient Raj, uh, Raj's podcast mm. and he, the stories of food and the human costs of the things that we eat are absolutely fascinating. The stories mm-hmm. behind them. And it's always interesting to be able to really fully un- better understand the food that we put in our mouth every day. But And it's so sad that sometimes these healthy foods don't taste really good. Yeah. It's not as good as a burger. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's sad that the healthy foods, you know, have these horrible sides behind them. I mean, that too. <laughs> but like, because me too, I've tried to adopt a healthy eating. And I see why, like, 
because you know when you go out and maybe like Brussels sprouts, all these things, like oh three dollars, it costs less than a burger and stuff. But then when you're looking at satiety level, it's yeah. like, um, and then goodness. Would you like too. to pay three dollars to be hungry in five minutes? <laughs> <laughs> well, you be healthy. Yeah. Long term costs <laughs> of a Trump's short term happiness. Yeah. <laughs> Remember that it's just temporary happiness. Yeah, <laughs> but but it does really bring up the point of you know when you're trying to be healthy mm-hmm. and, and, you know, Raj made a great point throughout this podcast episode, you know, you might want to be healthy, but the cost is not, you know, the, it's often way too expensive mm-hmm. or you didn't grow up eating that kind of food. So you don't like the taste of it and it mm-hmm. makes it really hard to make decisions. And that's kind of going into the social determinants of health because, you know, a lot of these determinants are just so much more complicated. You know, something we can look at on the surface and see is simple, straightforward is actually so much deeper. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on this uh, on this episode, okay, before I get to make a huge announcement that I'm excited about? <laughs> I was thinking like when you just spoke about that, it's like an investment in your health or in your life, like putting in the capital and then waiting for the rewards. But then that capital isn't something everyone can afford, which is why there's always that whole... Yeah. So that's a great point, Ogay. I want to I'm going to leave our conversation on Haley's interview with Raj Patel right there. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go ahead and make a huge announcement that I'm super excited for. We have a couple of episodes about coronavirus coming to you all. I'm sure you all have heard it in the news. Everyone who I know who listens to this podcast has asked me to do an episode about it. I'm super excited to be able to go ahead and do this. I know in our editor's meeting on Friday, one of our main proponents was Oge, <laughs> or who, who pushed for an ep- a couple episodes on this. So we're going to be talking about coronavirus. A little, we're going to give it a little bit of an explainer. The, thing, the lens we're going to be looking through is disinformation and public health information in the face of outbreaks. We are so excited to be able to share that series with you so hopefully we'll be seeing you next week you don't want to miss it yeah all right that's it for us this week okay guys so let us know what you thought about this episode you can let us know about that or what you thought about this interview at cph grad ambassador at uio.edu that is cph dash g-r-a-d a-m b-a s-s a D-O-R at U-I-O-W-A dot E-D-U. You can find us on Facebook at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. We're on iTunes and Spotify as well as the University of Iowa College of Public Health. That's it for this week. This episode of From the Front Row was hosted by Oge Chibo, Haley Boudreaux, and Ian Bukta. This episode was produced by Ian Bukta. Our guest today was Dr. Raj Patel. Check out his podcast, The Secret Ingredient, wherever you get this podcast, as well as his many books, which can be found on his website at www.rajpatel.org, www.rajpatel.org. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. See you next week!